Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 154, Zen at War. In Tokugawa, Japan, it was good to be a Buddhist. Though Japan had no official religion per se, the Buddhist establishment was well protected by the Tokugawa through a combination of policies. Mandatory registration at a local temple for all Japanese, originally a program to sniff out Christians, meant that Buddhist organizations enjoyed support from the entire population, regardless of whether that support was freely given. State support for Buddhist institutions, especially the large temple complexes of Edo and Kyoto, was constantly forthcoming, and Buddhist institutions dominated the education of most Japanese with the system of terakoya, or temple schools. The official philosophy of Tokugawa Japan was Chinese-derived Neo-Confucianism, but in a very real sense, the Buddhists were actually stronger than the Confucians. Buddhism certainly was much more a presence in the lives of average Japanese than Confucianism was. But then the West came to Japan, and the Tokugawa regime collapsed, and institutional Buddhism found itself in something of a rough spot. For a modernizing Meiji regime dedicated to the creation of a unitary Japanese national culture, Buddhism was suspicious for the same reason Christianity was. It was foreign. After all, Buddhism had existed in Japan for 1,500 years, but its origins lay 2,500 years in the murky past in the far-off land of India. Meiji leaders also viewed Buddhism with suspicion because of its association with the Tokugawa regime, which they had fought to overthrow. Buddhist establishments were generally seen as pro-Tokugawa, particularly by resentful average Japanese who had been forced to support them. Finally, Buddhism came under pressure that most religious organizations have in the modern age, the pressure to find a way to fit into the modern world where science and technology seem to provide ever more answers. For Buddhists in Japan, the problem was compounded by a tendency among Westerners to view East Asian Buddhism as somehow less pure, more superstitious, more syncretic than the truer Buddhism of South and Southeast Asia, known as Theravadan Buddhism. In the latter half of the 19th century, then, Japanese Buddhism came under serious and sustained attack from Japanese establishment figures and from society. First, Buddhism and Shinto were legally broken up. The long-standing symbiosis between the two was forcibly ended, and the institutions which had once been both temples and Shinto shrines were forced to split, though they could continue sharing grounds to an extent. Then came the infamous Haibutsukishaku campaigns of the 1870s, the campaigns to abolish Buddhism and destroy Shakyamuni, the figure known simply in the West as the Buddha. During these campaigns, locals assaulted, burned, and looted Buddhist temples, sometimes with tacit sanction from officials and sometimes of their own initiative. Buddhists, it was widely believed, had stolen from the people with the help of the Tokugawa establishment and now it was time to get even. By any measure, it was a bad time to be a Buddhist, and in the estimates of some, Japanese Buddhism came close to extinction, though personally I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. Either way, these challenges forced Buddhist institutions to adapt. Today we'll talk about how one branch of the Buddhist faith dealt with this challenge to its status, Zen Buddhism. 
Zen Buddhism, though best known by its Japanese moniker, is originally from China. It first began to flourish in the 500s CE, roughly the same time that, on the other side of the planet, the Emperor Justinian was trying to put the Western Roman Empire back together. It came to Japan around the time of the Genpei War, as part of two distinct lineages, the Rinzai and Soto sects of Zen. The distinction between the two is pretty fine. It revolves around debates over the specific nature of enlightenment and whether it comes gradually or suddenly. For our purposes, it's not really worth getting too far into the weeds of doctrinal difference. What matters is that both sects enjoyed a degree of success, though Rinzai was the more successful of the two. The practice of Zen is similar, though not the same, in both schools. They both emphasize rigorous schedules of meditation. My undergraduate advisor actually was a practicing Zen Buddhist, and he used to get up at five in the damn morning every day to meditate for hours before going to work. He invited me once. I said no thanks. That meditation, unlike many other sects of Buddhism, is performed without any sort of aid. Other Buddhist sects use visual metaphors, for example, the intricate representations of the universe, known as mandalas, or a statue of a famous figure, to focus meditation. Zen Buddhists, however, are taught to avoid those kind of things and focus instead on their own thoughts and their own breaths. Both were deeply iconoclastic. One of the great thinkers of Zen, a Chinese monk named Linji, once said that if the Buddha himself came down to try and teach you how to become enlightened, you should just kill him. The only place you should be looking for your answers is within yourself. Both sects benefited from Tokugawa patronage, though certainly not to the same degree as larger forms of Buddhism, such as the massive Jodo or Pure Land sect. Likewise, both came under fire after the end of the Tokugawa system. What provided relief for the Zen establishment was ultimately that least Buddhist of institutions, war. Specifically, Japan's war in 1894-1895 with China, over who would ultimately be the master of Korea, a question neither side was particularly interested in getting Korean input on. Patriotic movements supporting the war sprung up all over Japan, and the Buddhist establishment was little different. First to get on board with the idea were the Pure Land Buddhists of Nishihonganji, a temple in Kyoto, who issued a statement on July 31st, 1894, the day before war was declared. The statement is full of high-sounding rhetoric about repaying one's debt to the nation and the importance of loyalty to the state, and the promise of good karma, or spiritual rewards, for those who took up arms in defense of their nation. Other sects quickly issued similar statements, particularly once it was clear by early 1895 that Japan was going to win. In February 1895, the first Zen priest to weigh in on the subject, Kato Totsudo, did so in a magazine called Taiyo, or The Sun. Quote, Even though the principles of transcending life and death are the basis of all Buddhist schools, Zen has a quality that is most welcomed by soldiers, for it possesses a special kind of vigor. End quote. Kato went on to make the case that the rigor which Zen Buddhists focused on meditation and the calm that instilled within them could be a tremendous aid for Japan's soldiers. Zen Buddhism would not just make you enlightened, it would make you a better warrior. 
Now, it's worth noting, again, that it wasn't just Zen Buddhists who started talking this way. All of the Buddhist sects of Japan, despite proclaiming their horror at the destruction of war, came out in support of a righteous conflict fought for just reasons. In the game of religious politics, the Sino-Japanese War provided an avenue by which Buddhist organizations could do what they needed to do most, prove their loyalty to the new order. The early 20th century saw much the same dynamic play out, and it was during this moment that Zen began to take a more prominent place in the association of patriotic Buddhist religious groups. Here we have to turn to two of the more interesting Buddhist thinkers out there, Suzuki Daisetsu and Nukarya Kaiten. Suzuki was born into the samurai class in 1870. When he was just a young boy, the abolition of samurai privileges bankrupted his family, as his father proved unable to make the transition to Japan's new economic reality. Suzuki, however, was a bright boy, and his early suffering caused him to turn to religion, where he excelled as a scholar of religious topics. Suzuki eventually made his way to the United States, where, along with the aid of German-American scholar Paul Karras, he began writing a series of books designed to introduce Buddhism, and especially Zen, to American audiences. Suzuki's work is pretty famous. One of his last books, Zen and Japanese Culture, is what he's best known for. It actually got him a Nobel Prize. However, Suzuki published in the pre-war period as well, and his writings were very much in the vein of patriotic Buddhism. Witness one passage from his 1896 Treatise on the New Meaning of Religion. Quote, Religion and the state must necessarily support each other if they are to achieve wholeness. Religion should, first of all, seek to preserve the existence of the state, abiding by its history and the feelings of its people. End quote. Suzuki then continues in a vein that's a bit long to quote at length, but which Buddhist priest and scholar Brian Victoria sums up nicely. To wit, quote, Japan has the right to pursue its commercial and trade ambitions as it sees fit. Should unruly heathens of any country interfere with that right, they deserve to be punished. Such punishment will be carried out with the full and unconditional support of Japan's religions, for it is undertaken with no other goal in mind than to ensure that justice prevails. Soldiers must offer up their lives to the state in carrying out such religious-sanctioned punishment, and discharging one's duty to the state on the battlefield is a religious act." End quote. Now, there's a lot more to Suzuki Daisetsu than just these ideas, and unsurprisingly, after 1945, he's going to back away from them in a big way. I bring him up because he's well-known, and that's useful in driving home just how widely shared these notions were. Equally, if not more important, was the work of Nukaria Kaiten, a religious scholar who, among other things, translated the works of Suzuki's collaborator Paul Karras into Japanese. Again, like Suzuki, Nukaria produced a substantial body of work, but for our purposes, his most important contribution was his 1913 piece, Zen, the Religion of the Samurai. Nukaria's most important point is readily apparent just from the title. He suggested that Zen Buddhism was closely associated with Japan's warrior class, and that many of the distinctive features of the samurai, like their supposedly unflinching willingness to die, were derived from Zen. Now, 
Of course, being naturally inclined to genius from listening to my show, you, my faithful listeners, will already know that this is nonsense on two levels. First, the samurai were just as willing to die as other warriors, which is to say, ranging from not willing at all to eh, sort of willing, depending on the individual. Second, the majority of samurai were members of the less demanding forms of Buddhism, usually one of the Pure Land sects or Nichiren Buddhism, which enabled individual warriors to focus more on simple rituals and uncomplicated theology than esoteric and demanding meditation practices. There were members of the samurai class who practiced Zen, but the majority were the members of the uppermost levels of that class, the daimyo, who had the time and money to sit around pondering the Buddha nature of all things, instead of having to work for a living. Nukarya's work, however, popularized the notion that the samurai class, Zen, and warfare all had some sort of special relationship, and that trope would be continuously reinforced during the 20th century. A similar notion was developed by Natobe Nazo, a Christian and humanist who, nevertheless, in his English-language pamphlet Bushido, the Soul of Japan, identified Bushido as the unifying moral code of Japan similar to Christianity in the West. He further located the roots of Bushido in Buddhism, and in particular, the ideas of Zen. The Russo-Japanese War, which broke out in 1904, proved just the kind of conflict that encouraged participants to get this kind of religion. It was bloody in the extreme. The first battle of the war cost Japan more casualties than the entire war with China. It was during this period that the relationship between Buddhism and war was truly permanently established. For example, one Japanese officer who would go on to become famous during the Second World War, Hayashi Senjiro, wrote in his memoirs of the particularly brave Jodo sect soldiers under his command who died chanting the name of the Buddha Amida. Zen practitioners got in on the action as well. One of the more famous 20th century Soto Zen masters, Sawaki Kodo, served in Manchuria during the war and wrote that his colleagues described him as, quote, a man with guts, just what you'd expect of a Zen priest, end quote. In his later writings, Sawaki said, quote, it is just to punish those who disturb the public order. Whether one kills or does not kill, the precept forbidding killing is preserved. It is the precept forbidding killing that wields the sword. It is the precept that throws the bomb, end quote. If that sounds, well, hard to parse, the short version is that killing is done independent of the will of the individual during wartime. It is done for the preservation of something greater, the nation, by that greater thing. Therefore, there is no individual responsibility attached. There is no need to feel guilt or shame. These efforts to decenter the individual meant that Zen could also help soldiers overcome fear of death. After all, if individual will is just an illusion and the precepts are all that is real, well, one of the most basic precepts is reincarnation. And do you really need to fear death on the battlefield if death is an illusion and you'll be back anyway? The whole concept was well illustrated by a monk at Hozenji in Osaka named Entai who would tell a story about the temple's persimmon trees when asked to recount the Russo-Japanese War. Whenever the trees bore fruit, some unripened persimmons would fall to the ground, a waste that Entai, when he was young, lamented. However, 
he later came to realize that the unripened persimmons served a vital purpose. Had they all flowered, the branches of the persimmon tree would have snapped under the weight. You might be able to see where this is going, but just in case, I'll let Entai spell it out for you. Quote, It is thanks to those who have fallen in battle that Japan is secure, making it possible for our young men to return safely. Those bereaved by the war have a heavy burden to bear. In doing so, they have brought happiness to many. If through their suffering they are able to bring happiness to even one more household, what could be more gratifying? This magnanimous spirit is what is meant by the mind of a bodhisattva, that is, a person who has attained enlightenment. The fallen persimmon already lies in the broad earth. It does not seek to have any more of its fellow persimmons join it. Rather, it merely looks up at the beautiful, ripe fruit still left at the trees, delighting in their bright red color. When you are able to do likewise, you will have realized a superb enlightenment. End quote. Witness also one Shaku Soen, a Rinzai sect master, who, among other things, was the first person to actually teach Zen in the United States. In 1904, he was approached by none other than Leo Tolstoy, a devout pacifist who wished to collaborate with a prominent member of Japanese society to oppose war between their nations. Shaku responded to Tolstoy's letter as follows, quote, Even though the Buddha forbade the taking of life, he also taught that until all sentient beings are united together through the exercise of infinite compassion, there will never be peace. Therefore, as a means of bringing into harmony those things which are incompatible, killing and war are necessary. End quote. Taken together, the Sino and Russo Japanese wars provided an opportunity that Japanese Buddhist leaders, including those of the Zen sect, were not prepared to miss out on a chance to prove their loyalty by wholeheartedly endorsing their nation's war aims. It also became increasingly fashionable for members of the military to highlight their own attachments to Zen. By the second decade of the 20th century, it was common knowledge that two of Japan's greatest military heroes were Zen practitioners. Kodama Gentaro, who was a major military reformer of the 1880s and one of the leading generals of the Sino-Japanese War, and Nogimaresuke, who led the assault on the key Russian fortress of Port Arthur and who had later become famous for his suicide on the occasion of the Meiji Emperor's death. Incidentally, that practice of suicide after the death of one's master, known as Junshi, was associated with, but relatively rare among, the historical samurai class. However, it was one of the notions valorized by Nukaria Kaiten as evidence of the impact of Zen on the samurai. After the conclusion of the Russo-Japanese War, the theory of Zen as the philosophy of the warrior gained ever greater credence. Shaku Soen, for example, promoted this idea during his tours of the United States. In America, Shaku suggested that Japan's recent victories, and its modernization in general, could be attributed to the superior spiritual toughness of the Japanese people. The source of that spiritual toughness could be found in various aspects of Japan's history, but Buddhism, Shaku posited, was the unique source of notions of selflessness that had enabled the Japanese to sacrifice so much in the pursuit of victory. This notion of spiritual strength was embraced by none other than the uppermost echelons of the Japanese military, influential commanders who would go on to positions of influence during the 1920s, 1930s, and the 1940s. These were men like Tanaka Giichi, 
who served as both war minister and prime minister in the 1920s, and Itagaki Seishiro, who, among other things, was the commander-in-chief in China and war minister. In other words, not insignificant people. As Japan became increasingly militarized during the 1930s, militarized Zen caught on to an even greater extent. For example, the Soto Zen master Hata Esho wrote an article for a Buddhist journal in the mid-1930s in which he argued that the original Buddha, Shakyamuni, had accrued some of the good karma necessary to be reborn as the Buddha by fighting in just wars, like, of course, the one Japan was currently engaged in. The real paragon of the Zen warrior for the 1930s was Sugimoto Goro, a colonel in the Japanese army who had been killed fighting the armies of nationalist China in North China in 1937. Sugimoto had been a practicing Zen adherent and had once written, quote, The reason that Zen is important for soldiers is that all Japanese, especially soldiers, must live in the spirit of unity between the sovereign and his subjects, eliminating their ego and getting rid of their self. It is exactly this awakening to the nothingness of Zen that is the fundamental spirit of the unity between sovereign and subject. Through my practice of Zen, I am able to get rid of my ego. Zen becomes, as it is, the true spirit of the imperial military. In writing a eulogy for the dead Colonel Goro, a Zen monk named Ekiju parroted this sentiment, including, among other things, a truly ludicrous story about the moment of Goro's death, in which his mastery of Zen enabled Goro to supposedly turn east at the moment of death and bow one final time to the imperial palace. A collection of Goro's sayings, including his notions of Zen and war, were later published. They became popular, and for some branches of the military, mandatory reading during the wartime years. So what the hell is going on here? Do these people really think that Zen makes you into some great warrior that'll make you into some unconquerable juggernaut? Well, here's the thing. After defeating both the Chinese and the Russians, Japan was awash in patriotic sentiment. Only a few decades earlier, the Japanese had seen themselves as backwater, hopelessly behind the industrial West. Now Japan had defeated the great Chinese and defeated a European power as well. Clearly, this was a testament to the greatness of the Japanese national spirit. Japanese intellectuals began searching for the source of whatever had allowed Japan to overcome such tremendous odds. In other words, to locate the special aspect of Japanese spirit that had enabled such triumphs. This is something that might sound familiar to students of post-war Japan. A similarly congratulatory body of writing grew up in the 1970s and 1980s, to try and account for the post-war economic miracle as some result of unique Japanese spirit. Incidentally, some writers during that period gave credit to Zen as well for shaping an ethic of selflessness among the Japanese. However, early 20th century writers located the source of national triumph in, among other places, Bushido, a notion of samurai spirit which, as we've already discussed in previous episodes, was deeply distorted from both the historical reality of the samurai and any notion of their own self-identity as a class that the samurai would have recognized. That meant that a movement particularly interested in promoting itself as patriotic, such as Buddhists in general, or the Zen sects in particular, would have been well served by tying itself to this notion of Bushido and the Japanese spirit. 
So that is precisely what many a Zen monk or institution did. It is important to note that there were objectors among every Buddhist sect who fought back against the growing militarization of their religion. However, they were relatively few and far between. Far more common were those like Harada Sogaku, a Zen master who, in 1939, went on the record saying, quote, If ordered to march, tramp, tramp, or shoot, bang, bang. This is the manifestation of the highest wisdom of enlightenment. The unity of Zen and war extends to the furthest reaches of the holy war now underway, end quote. After the Second World War ended, the reaction among the majority of Buddhists was to try and forget this ever happened. Like, I dare say, the majority of Japanese, Zen Buddhists wanted to put the war behind them and forget their own culpability. The Zen establishment, like most of Japan, embraced a view of the past euphemistically referred to as the Dark Valley, that Japan had been pulled away from the track of progress and civilization, by a cabal of militarists and high-ranking officers, upon whom all responsibility for what had gone wrong rested. Conveniently forgotten was the culpability of the majority of Japanese, who did endorse the war so long as it was going well. Among many Buddhist institutions, the more general response was to attempt to pull back from politics altogether. Brian Victoria, who went to Japan as a Methodist missionary before converting to Buddhism and becoming a Zen priest, recalled that in 1970, he was actively involved in Japan's anti-war movement. As a result, he was chastised by Niwa Denpo, the abbot of the temple in which he resided. Niwa told him, priests do not get involved in politics. Some who had been deeply involved in wartime Zen were able to protect their own careers as a result. For example, Yasutani Hakun, who not only endorsed Japanese militarism, but ultra-rightism and even anti-Semitism, enjoyed a long career after the war until his death in 1973. That career even included speaking tours in the United States, which he had once said must be smashed by Japan to guarantee the peace of Asia. Yet not everybody was so sanguine about the prospect of retreating from the past, for example, after the war, Ichikawa Hakugen, a Rinzai Zen priest and instructor at the Rinzai-affiliated Hanazono University in Kyoto, wrote a book called The War Responsibility of Buddhism During World War II, which, well, covers exactly what it sounds like. Abbots, monks, and representatives of some of the temples of Zen have issued apologies for their involvement in promoting Japan's wars in Asia and against the West. However, in many cases, it took decades of pressure to get them to do so. Now, I decided I wanted to tell the story of Zen's deal with the proverbial devil, not to disparage it or Buddhism in general, but because I think it's a fascinating case study of the relationship between religion and temporal political power. The temptation for religious organizations to associate themselves with politics will always be there, the justification is usually something like, with state support, we can reach more people and get the message out, and that end justifies any means. Pretty much every religion I've ever seen had to grapple with this issue at some point. And for Zen, for a while, that deal worked out pretty well. It and most other Buddhist sects went from marginalized to powerful political rallying points with substantial support in the space of half a century. 
I think this is a question that anybody with a religious affiliation, and I include myself in that, has to grapple with. How far is it justifiable to muddy the message to support what you believe in? What counts as a step too far? For Zen, this question remains an open one. Wartime Zen is obviously a thing of the past, but its descendant, corporate Zen, is alive and well. More than a few Japanese corporations contract with Zen temples to send their employees on retreats designed to toughen them up, both spiritually and physically, to give them spiritual toughness and an ethic of selflessness that will enable them to sacrifice for the corporation. In other words, much the same justification for the Zen of soldiers. For the Zen institutions that engage in these programs, the arguments trotted out are always the same. The money is good. It sustains our other activities. And of course, none of that is wrong. All of it is true. How comfortable you are with it, that's up to you. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to listeners Preston, Seth Kincaid, and David Etheridge for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we will be starting yet another long series, this one on the relationship between Japan and its closest neighbor, Korea.